0: This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland.
1: What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another episode of Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Got a. It's
0: a different episode.
1: Different episode. episode. If you're
0: looking for technology, To, 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 scout for your company, this is not the episode for you, but if you want to dive into a great story of an entrepreneur, who's been through a lot of stuff, this is the and, episode for and you. And it's
1: had some cool realizations and clarity and energy. And it's also just a controversial figure on Twitter every once in a while, but we got the one and only the man, the myth, the legend, Brian Gitt. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, appreciate you being in, uh, being in town and coming and doing this. Uh, we were just laughing before we got on the mic. I was like, yeah, you know, Brian called me a while back and just wanted to create content on Twitter and kind of like talk to him about just like what was happening in oil and gas tech and Twitter. Then he started posting. I was like, all of a sudden he's got more followers than than I do. So you've
2: blown up over there. (laughs) So great work on that. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, it's great to meet you guys in person. You know, obviously we've talked on the phone and engaging through social media, but it's always, I don't know, I really have come to appreciate all of these in-person interactions. You just can't replace it with Zoom or (laughs) you know, communicating all these social channels. So yeah, you I know just, with
1: our podcast, we were very strict. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for four and a half years now and we're like, we're not doing it remote. Even during COVID we did one remote episode. We're like, yeah, fuck that. We're not doing a remote <laughs> yeah. episode. Just, you can't replicate yeah, yeah. us
0: just sitting in this room. Like I mean, yeah. us bullshitting before we, you know, started the mic yeah, just for getting, 30 minutes. Getting to talk. I mean, the, the, you just don't, you can't replicate. Are
2: action. you still in uh, are you in San
0: Francisco? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I've been, I've been living in the Bay area. Gosh. 25 years i've lived all parts of the bay and yeah. north bay east bay <laughs> making a circle around it but yeah I, I i live in san francisco
1: cool so give me your backstory you know being in san francisco you know uh, it's been a long time since we talked on the phone i think you came from a tech background um and
2: uh, I've, I've been part of building companies operating companies so just kind of tell us about that real quick Sure. Well, I grew up in St. Louis in the Midwest, so okay. it, it took me a while to get out to California. I'm not <laughs> not a native Californian. Uh, lived in actually Austin, Texas for a year, many years ago. Before, Over, before it was cool, huh? Yeah, before it was the way, b- way before it was cool. <laughs> and I lived in Arizona, so I, I slowly migrated west. And one of the reasons I migrated west was at that point in time, this was, gosh, like 25 years ago or something, is Just all the promise and hope of kind of Silicon Valley and all the cool stuff, the technology that's happening there, but also Mm -hmm. a lot of the environmental ethos out there. At that point, I was a real hardcore environmentalist Mm -hmm. when I was young. I mean, I was the kind of (laughs) when I was a teenager, I used to lead all these outdoor adventure trips. We'd go for 40 days in Alaska. Uh, take, awesome. Taking teenagers uh, doing glacier travel, sea kayaking, ice climbing, yeah. all this kind of stuff, and I—I I mean, quite honestly, I just fell in love with the outdoors. I yeah. just love being outside, really connected with. It. I love sharing and teaching kids about that experience because you saw this transformation. So, this quick little story: we would most of the kids we took were wealthy, right? How how else are going to afford to send their kid for six weeks to Alaska or something yeah, like yeah, that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so they're mostly from the coast. Mostly pretty sheltered, I just remember this girl she 's fifteen years old she 's from Manhattan, never cooked a meal, never washed her own clothes, never had to do much for herself right She lived a pretty privileged life and here she was in remote alaska we We would hike ten days into the wilderness 10 days from a road. Yeah. So if anything would happen, you're, you're out there. Yeah, you're kind of screwed. And I, was, I was 21 years old and my trip leader, she was 22 and that's it, we had no backup. Wow. And our job was not to caretake these kids and babysit them. Our job was to teach them how to be self-sufficient, how to read a map, how to cook, how to set their tent up, how to, how to survive in the, in the wilderness. And watching the transformation of this girl it was 15 years old that had never done anything, taken any responsibility really for herself to feeling, you know, seeing her go through that whole cycle of feeling frustrated and in tears and all these things in the beginning. And then seeing her at the end of that process, feeling confident in a way that she had never felt and having this connection to the environment and the outdoors. It was such a cool experience yeah. to watch that transformation in people. So that's what hooked me. I got hooked. And you know, because I was spending all this time in the outdoors, I was really kind of bleeding environmental ethos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I wanted to protect these areas because, I, number one, I selfishly wanted to experience them, but also I wanted everyone else to experience them. And and that kind of led me down a whole path of my career. So this was, you know, that started in in my late teens when I started doing all this outdoor backpacking, rock climbing, all this stuff, yeah. and then eventually was worked myself away to basically lead the trips. So that all that led me to energy into buildings, because I was very practical about it. I didn't want to be one of these people that says, Oh, save the rainforest, or this or that. It's like very remote, very hard to relate to for most people. Like, what is that? How does that really affect my life? But energy in buildings, that's something that we deal with every day. I mean, we're working in buildings, we're raising our kids and families in buildings and uh, we relate with energy and all these materials. So that just seemed like a very practical way to, to make a dent and educate people, etc. So that's kind of what sucked me into the energy space and, and kind of what I would characterize as green building, mm-hmm. green construction, and set me on my path. So <laughs> that's how I got into all this, is yeah. coming from a kind of an odd angle, um, especially where I am today and how most people view my my position?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, yeah, let's, we got to bridge over to like, you know, how people view your position. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta work <laughs> up to that a bit. Um, you know, you go from spending a ton, a ton of time in the outdoors, really gaining this respect for nature, um, moving into green buildings. And, you know, when you and I had talked on the phone, you're like, you told me, you're like, Hey, you know, I was one of these guys that, you know, uh, an environmentalist, I believe oil and gas was was bad, um, you know, things of this nature. What was the catalyst for you having a shift in the way that you thought about energy? Like it, something happened.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> many things happened. So I, you know, I, I worked for over 20 years within the energy sector, but all on technologies that would be characterized as green technologies, like energy efficiency, whether it's lighting, heating, air conditioning kind of technologies, we would- Uh, For a time, I was a CEO of a consulting firm that we would implement programs for utilities to make homes more energy efficient. And this is one of the first times I've really started to see cracks in my belief system because I thought my belief was, hey, if we had enough money, if we had all the government support and utility support and all the contractors on board, we could do this. We could make all these buildings more energy efficient. We could put solar on all these homes and we could achieve the environmental goals that we had set out to. And then 2008 happened with the financial crash and the federal government under the Obama administration decided to pump a massive amount of money into the energy sector to get people back to work, to create jobs. Mm -hmm. And this started, the money started to flow in early, mid 2009 and then ran for several years. So my company was really well positioned for that, and we ended up winning a sixty million dollar contract to implement a really large scale program in California. Nice. And I was, ex- I mean, I was ecstatic, right? I mean, here we yes, are. Like we're, we're a sixty million dollar contract. Yeah, <laughs> You know, our company. I was brought in to the company. The founder. It was a thirty year old company. It was, a, it was a small boutique consulting firm. They had specialized in energy technologies, did a lot of work for the Electric Power Research Institute and utilities, and but very niche things. And we were about 15 people, pretty small. Mm-hmm. And then overnight, we win these big contracts, and we scaled up to 50 people within a very short period of time, like six months. And then we had this massive, because we were the general, basically, contractor, program manager for this. So we had dozens of large subcontractors and lots of money flowing through. And it just changed overnight. And we opened a new office in LA. And this was a statewide program in California. And this really taught me, though, this was a kind of a direct answer to your question, which yeah. is, why, how did I change my mind? Well, here it was we had everything, we had all these resources, all the support you could ever imagine from all the key stakeholders. And the program was a failure in my mind because we had set out, you know, California around that time period, had set these really ambitious targets. And government agencies love to do this. They love to set aspirational targets, whether it's around CO2 reduction, around a number of homes that are energy efficient and other homes that get solar installed on it. They love to set these aspirational goals. At the time, the California Public Utilities Commission and all the state agencies set this aspirational goal that 100 percent... Of the homes would become forty percent more energy efficient by two thousand twenty. This was in two thousand eight timeframe two thousand eight two thousand nine when mm-hmm. they set these goals. I was thinking forty percent more efficient in by twenty twenty all, all of them. You mean all of the, the whole housing yeah. stock? I mean, there's
0: and for know, context, you so you guys were consulting on that. Like, what was it? What, what do you think is a realistic efficiency kind of well, goal there?
2: Yeah, exactly. So even the deep home performance contractors that would go into a house and upgrade and redo the air conditioning system and the heating system and they'd see all the ducts and they'd put in insulation and oftentimes they'd put in new windows and you know just all the best practices around energy efficiency most of the time they were getting 20 to 30 percent savings and those projects were costing you know, $20,000. It's not inexpensive to put in all those major HVAC systems and do mm. all this kind of work. And they do all the performance testing, blower door test, air duct uh, testing, all this for leakage, all this stuff. It's it's a huge investment up front. And none of it really, I mean, they're all good things to do, right? It's it's You want to have a home that's comfortable, you don't hear sound pollution from the street, um, mm-hmm. You you know, don't have... Off gassing from bad products—you know those are all good things. I support yeah. it all. However, it doesn't make financial sense. You wouldn't do it for a return on investment because, yeah. first of all, many of these homes would never pay back ever. And if even if they did, you're talking about decades, not yeah. not like five year payback. There's a funny
1: story uh, along those lines. So uh, Chuck Yates, who's on our team, you know, a long time private equity guy, ran Kane Anderson's energy practice and his dad got solar panels on his house here in Houston. And Chuck's like, why did you get solar panels? Like your payback on that, you're never going to get payback. It's like 20 years. And then winter storm Yuri hits and Chuck lost power out of his house. And his dad had power through his solar panels. So Chuck's like, oh yeah, okay. I get it. Like pay a premium to have, (laughs) you know, have that ability to have, you know, distributed energy system, but it may not make sense financially. But, you know, if you have the means to pay a premium, it can make sense from, you know, just- security and having access to energy. So um, I think that's important to bifurcate of like what makes sense economically and what just
2: makes sense if you do have discretionary money to spend on those things. Yeah. So this was one of the first cracks in my belief system because I held all these beliefs that we could do this. And what it showed me when we had all those resources and engagement from stakeholders is we, we upgraded a few thousand homes or something like that. I'm, t- I'm trying to remember the exact number, but it was certainly less than, I don't know, five, 10,000 homes, let's say. Yeah. The state of California has like 14 million housing units. I mean, and they had set these ambitious goals at the state level to achieve almost a, basically 100% market penetration with 40% reduction. And I was just sharing, I mean, the level of investment you would need to spend to get to 40%, you're talking 40 to $50,000. And many homes could never get there yeah. just because of their existing construction or yeah. kind of the way they're Was it designed. saying
0: all those 14 million homes or was it just saying new homes moving forward? No. All existing
2: homes. They had separate goals for new construction.
0: How do you come up with a goal that is so off-base? Like, did they just have the wrong people in their ears saying that this is even possible in the first place? I mean, they are that about energy policy. <laughs> I mean- but, but with this case in particular, do you know how they even got to this number?
2: They it all comes back to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change is kind of the underlying motivation or force behind this that's driving a lot of this. And they just did this analysis on each sector. They look at transportation, they look at buildings, they look at uh, industry, and then they start segmenting that out and they start to tally this all up and say, well, what do we need to do to hit these aspirational greenhouse gas reduction goals? I mean, that's really what was driving this. And so that, well, if we're going to hit the goal, we're going to have to do this kind of level of effort and level of reduction, regardless of how that's realistic or practical cuz it's clearly not but that's not really what their job is and there's no accountability in these things no, I mean, yeah. you set these goals and targets all the time oftentimes if the people are around they're never held accountable and oftentimes they're not even around anymore yeah. especially the politi- the elected p- officials that are yeah. putting spearheading and mm-hmm. cheerleading these things they're not even in that role anymore yeah. and so there's no real accountability mm-hmm. for these types of so we just dissect the incentives it's like Charlie Munger says: like, look at the incentives, uh, and you always find uh, the the rationale behind it. Um, it's just it's that's what's happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, talking about California's energy policy and especially some of the things that they're doing uh, nowadays is a whole another episode
2: mm. in of
1: itself. Because you oftentimes ask, is like, how do, this isn't realistic from you know several different angles, whether it's economics, whether it's physics, whether it's just you know, uh, I think what you talked about was like, Hey, we had everything that we needed. We had all the buy-in, all the support from all the key uh, stakeholders. And this is something that I think people that are outside the energy industry, you know, they always say, well, it's oil and gas that's, you know, keeping renewables from wind and solar. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, there's more money's flown into renewables and that you can possibly keep up with. All the money and the resources are there, but what, happens is that you run into physics and economics and reality, right? And so there's this whole just notion that it's oil and gas, it's stifling innovation and um, keeping new energy sources from coming. But you saw this in a firsthand experience of like, hey, you can have support from all the key stakeholders. You can have all the money that you need. And there's still challenges to being able to go and execute
2: on those things. And so that's really cool first first world. Yeah, experience I was, I was that. inside the belly of the beast. I mean, California, and they're they're not stopping. I mean, they're, they, they, they take these bad ideas and then they run all the way over the cliff with them. I mean, <laughs> right, right now they're doing this with zero emission vehicles. So they've banned new any kind of internal combustion sales of new. Internal and they're going combustion. after
1: semis too, yes. which is, and you know, uh, gas generators, um, which is just insane to me um you know look i'm a I'm a fan of electric vehicles I actually think that they are a better product than internal combustion engines in certain situations you know I don't want to be driving across Texas to midland in an e v but driving from the house to the office like I'll do that all day and and a I think Tesla, from, from a me-
0: mechanical standpoint it's definitely a better consumer product it's yeah. even me being a car guy because now you know we're about Oil changes. I mean, there's still things that have to get replaced, Just right? All the but things, like, that,
1: all the things that break and that you have to yeah. maintain on ice. Yeah, and so, yeah. but also realizing that hey, the goals that we have set for EVs by 2030, 2040, all these arbitrary numbers that don't like they're all made up, right? It's like you can't get to levels of 100% penetration, especially in these short of time frames, and that goes both for EVs and renewables. And you know, here at Digital All-Catters, we're pro energy. We think that we need every energy energy source that we can get um, especially as we continue to um, scale technology and society continues to thrive but also really thinking about that through a pragmatic lens and saying like hey we can't scale up um, you know nameplate capacity of wind power generation in Texas too quickly or else you run into situations like URI and other Brown out blackout situations because if we haven't invested the capex that needs to go into backup power generation, things of that nature. And so, um, you know, it's unfortunate to see like what happens in California. And I think that you hit the nail on the head that there's no accountability. So why does it you just put anything that you want out there and then people and society that may not be as educated on the topic, like, oh, hey, we need to have electric vehicles by two thousand thirty. So that's what we're doing. And they don't think about negative second order effects of that policy.
2: Yeah. Last September in California, you're getting alerts on your phone telling you not to charge your electric vehicle because the state grid is in jeopardy of going into a power blockout situation. Mm -hmm. And we have a teeny fraction of the vehicles currently that are electric. So I'm with I'm pro technology. I don't really I'm agnostic on technology. (laughs) Whatever is going to be useful, convenient, add value to people's lives. Great. I don't really care what that is. But let the market decide. Let consumers decide. Don't try to cram it down on people from the top in arbitrary ways. And ultimately, you are going to really, number one, you're going to kill people. Um, because this is energy is life or death. I mean, yes. you guys saw this in Texas. When you have power blackouts, people die. You had at least a couple hundred people yeah. or more die. Um, so it's, it's serious. I mean, and- you look
1: at it to a bigger scale. I mean, the reason that there's a full-on war in Ukraine comes down to energy policy. When you have a petrol warlord in Putin that's not afraid of Europe because he has leverage over Nat gas supply, things of that nature. I mean, tons of innocent people die. They die when you have uh, uh, fertilizer shortages like we had because Nat gas is the feedstock for it. And so now you have famine Mm -hmm. and food shortages. I mean, there's this, everything is connected together and it all comes back to energy. Energy's upstream of everything, right? So- yeah, I mean, this is a serious matter that we're talking about when we have bad energy policy. People die as a re- as a result of that.
2: And you're crushing small businesses and hurting poor people. I mean, yeah. that that's who's really suffering the worst brunt of this. I was just speaking with uh a trade association in California the other day. They're members uh basically it's California Fuels and Convenience Association. So it's all the gas station convenience store owners and fuel yeah. uh distributors and and folks and they you know, these kinds of policies are threatening their livelihoods, right? These are family-owned businesses. These aren't big corporations. People think that gas station owners are owned by, you know, all the big supermajors. It's not true. I mean, very small percentage of them. Most of them are small family-owned, mostly minority-owned businesses just trying to make a living and spend all the small businesses that are distributing fuel, everything else. And these kind of arbitrary laws and rules – are, are really threatening their business and their their livelihood. So it's there's many examples of this. It's not even people just in the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. that suffer the brunt of this because everyone has to pay more for energy. I mean, California's energy costs have been skyrocketing seven times faster than the rest of the country. Yeah. Now they're paying 80% more in many parts of the state on average. Mm-hmm. And this this hurts the poor people the most, yeah. right? Yeah. and as well as small businesses it's not good for anyone
1: yeah you know yeah. i uh, i have a friend she runs a um energy company here in houston and it might be a non-profit i can't remember if it is or not but it's actually a uh utility electricity provider and she talks about energy poverty and she's like you know when we talk about energy poverty we always picture you know africa or places like that parts of asia she's like it's right here in houston she's like you know you go to different parts of Houston and you have a single mother with four kids that gasoline prices are high and she can't put money in her car, uh, in her gas tank to go to work. And so that's like what all of her work is, you know, this isn't some foreign concept of like, Oh, this only happens over in poor parts of the world. Like happens to, you know, people here in the United States and in our
2: cities. Yeah. You know, one thing, I, I'll push back a little bit on something you said earlier, because it's always fun to have some disagreement, too. Oh, too. Yeah.
1: Sent <laughs> <laughs> across the table from Frax Lab, dude. Hell yeah. <laughs> you, know,
2: you, know, you were saying kind of the all-above uh, the approach, like we need more. I agree 100%. We need more energy. That's yeah. the number one goal is we yeah. need more energy. The world is – we know it's going to consume 50% more energy than it is today. Most of that growth is going to happen in the developing world. But yeah. even here, we're going to need a lot more energy for all – Robotics, machine learning, all the digitalization of everything, we're going to use a lot more. I don't think necessarily that all of the above approach is the right thing because there's always opportunity cost and there's a limited amount of time and resources that we have. Mm -hmm. And if you spread everything out across a bunch of different things that might not be really effective in the way that they're intended, you're not actually achieving the goal. And so I am not anti-solar. I'm not anti wind Like I said, I'm agnostic on technologies. And they have their place. And and I think it's it's an interesting niche technology. However, pumping trillions of dollars into building infrastructure that is based on those technologies is a recipe for disaster. I think, number one, in terms of skyrocketing energy bills. Number two, massive uh, reliability issues and resilience issues of the grid. And I think it is – I look through the lens of opportunity cost, because if we're going to put all of these resources there, we're basically saying no to other technologies. Yeah. And in Texas, is a great example, they are parasitic on thermal power plants, right? All of the incentives that have been pumped into wind incentives mostly, but solar too, in the state of Texas are acting as a parasite on the economics of running a natural gas plant, a nuclear plant, and these other technologies. And so it's not like these things just exist in a vacuum. They they interface and relate. And when these wind farms are basically monetizing the subsidy or the tax credit um, so that wealthy people can pay less taxes, but yet they're undermining the reliability of the electrical grid because now you can't run your natural gas plant or your nuclear plant at an optimum level to achieve a level of performance and efficiency to make money, so no one's building those anymore, so those are shutting down or you can't build them, yeah. Um, and all the incentives are over here, people making money on it because they're you know all yeah. the tax credits. So, I don't believe in all of the above yeah, approach. I was, like, I
1: was excited, we're gonna have some disagreement, but oh, I, okay. should, I agree with all that. <laughs> <So, laughs> you know, one thing that, um, okay, a couple things, one is you know, energy is actually very much, uh, geographically dependent. Right. And so, um, West Texas, you don't have any water. So guess what? There's no hydropower there, but what there is a lot is oil, gas, wind, solar, go up to the Pacific Northwest. You know, you have, um, hydropower up there. And so one, you have some, uh, geographical limitations and, um, and cons when it comes to energy the second i love the, the point that you brought up because this is actually something i talk a lot about so in oil and gas you had this thing called half cycle economics and Here when we i go here's the rabbit hole yeah and when i learned <laughs> about what this actually meant it blew my mind because you'd hear like oh this well has a 40 percent irr and half cycle economics Half cycle economics meant, hey, we're going to back out all of our land costs, all of our G&A, and you're only looking at the marginal costs of that well bore. And um, I was like, how can you have 40% IRRs on these wells, but all these oil and gas companies are losing money? Well, yeah, because you base it off of half cycle economics. Something similar is happening right now with wind and solar, especially in Texas, where you, um, subsidize and you build all of this, uh, wind power generation. And like, you gotta ask yourself, like, why is there even such thing as stranded wind and solar assets? Like that shouldn't even be a thing. You know, everyone complains about transmission and interconnections. Like there shouldn't even be such th- like, why would you build a wind asset if you don't have connection to it? Well, it's cause it subsidized. Like you still make money for actually building out the asset. And there's always this talk about wind and solar are much cheaper than oil and gas. And I'm like, if you're looking at it on that asset base, yes, that can be true, but you're not, these things don't happen in a vacuum. I love how you, um, kind of frame that because now what happens is your nat gas, your nuclear plants. They don't have the CapEx investment that they need. And you build up all this nameplate, nameplate capacity in wind generation, and it's never operating at nameplate. You know, it's 30, 40% of that And so you rely on, you know, these Nat gas plants who are now being underinvested in and it becomes this problem to where all of a sudden you have grid issues and power generation issues in Texas where that was never a thing growing up as a kid. Like we always had, (laughs) we always had power now every month we're having brownout blackout issues. And so I think that that's something really important is when you look at renewables, we need to look at the cost from end to end. What do we need in battery storage? What do we need in backup generation? You can't just look at the asset by itself in a vacuum. You have to think about, and, you know, I have brought that up with like some of my friends that are in renewables are like, well, yeah, but the people that build the batteries are different than the people that build the, the wind assets. My thing is me as a taxpayer in Texas, I don't give a shit about the business model. I give a shit about having cheap and reliable and secure energy and a fragmented business model is actually proving that you lose reliability and power generation. So there's, th- my, there's my soapbox. I think
0: that going back to what you said earlier about the grid, uh, I saw this quote a while back. I don't know if it's true. Maybe you have an updated uh, kind of number on this, but talking about EV projections in particular, about what the goals would be and how much power we need to bring online to even support the charging, the infrastructure that we would need to build and a complete overhaul of our entire grid here in the United States. And the quote I saw was at like $14 trillion and it would also be the largest infrastructure renewal or plan ever. And the, like, the, it's like the equivalent of like building the Death Star. It's like so astronomical that nobody really has stopped and like think about it. Is this even possible? We've never done this before. We've never done anything, anything remotely close to the magnitude of this. Yet this is something that we're tying to a plan that everybody's kind of rallying behind. Right. I feel like there needs to be like a whole series on like shit that doesn't make sense. Like when you look at the actual data of like how, how like an entire content track for yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> like how how is this even? Yeah, like how is this even possible? You know, and also and then you see the numbers on like how much has been invested in things like wind and solar, and then the percentage of like the reduction of like greenhouse gases in comparison to let's just say oil and gas or nuclear or something else. And it's like trillions and
2: trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars for like offsetting like 1%. This is where I, th- I think there's a real disconnect between the ideology and, and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, because if CO2 reduction goal, which is a noble goal, yeah. right? Who, if we can reduce emissions, then, then we should. But if that was truly the goal, then why would you vilify natural gas when natural gas represents the vast majority of the savings as we've transitioned from coal to natural gas in the United States from 2005 61%. To, two, to 2020, 61% of the 1 billion ton metric tons of CO2 reduction, which is the equivalent, by the way, of every country in Europe combined. So the United States just transitioning from coal to gas over the last 15 yeah. plus years is the equivalent of all the stuff they've been doing in Europe yeah. uh,
1: during that time. Yeah. the You know, it's funny. I gave a lunch and learn to this law firm and uh, some of them were over in the UK and I didn't know what I was going to talk about. So I just talked about that. And this attorney, he's like, Colin, I'm listening to you talk. He's like, I'm sitting here fact-checking you. And he's like, you know, in the UK, we like to tout that we've driven down our CO2 emissions. He's like, but as I'm listening to you talk, that's because we've gone from coal to natural gas, and with the energy crunch that we're in, it seems that it's going to be much harder to go from natural gas to renewables. And so you start putting that logic, like you frame it up like that, and people, smart people that think objectively and pragmatically, they pick up on that. And you know, also kind of one of, you know, the we'll get into you being called a climate denier and everything on Twitter here in a little bit because you made comments on like, hey, we should reduce CO two. I put out a thing on Twitter the other day I was like who gets to determine the optimal amount of atmospheric gases and CO2 concentration because you know I mean I hate the whole decarbonate decarbonization thing because that's anti-life to me um like CO2 is the basis of all life so yes hey if 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 too high of a concentration um threatens life on the planet yeah we should work to mitigate that but also it's just idea of like hey we have to We have to mitigate every molecule and and you know methane and not and oil and gas it's just like it's kind of crazy to me but you know i want to kind of like wrap into some of the name calling that you get called on twitter because when i sit here and listen to you talk i'm like hey you know grew up loving nature grew up building uh technology that was around energy efficiency in the name of saving the planet you've worked in utilities you've done all this stuff and then you know you make this comment. you make like a Twitter thread that I think is very pragmatic and reasonable and all of a sudden you have people in the comments calling you a climate denier and things of this nature you know one what would you say to those people if they were listening to this show and then two like does that bother you like getting getting hate on Twitter it's funny because you'll tag me and stuff and so like my mentions are (laughs) blowing up I'm like so I just see everyone
2: hating on, hating on Brian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to go look, look at your tweets while you're talking. <laughs>
2: just yeah, so the whole reason I got into this, again, back to my origin story, was because I feel passionately about the environment. And that hasn't changed at all. Yeah. I just think we're do, going about it the wrong way. If we're going to be smart and practical about solutions, we need to be coming up with solutions that actually work. Mm-hmm. And to me, the whole direction we're going is, is the wrong direction right? If we care, we got to zoom out and think, what is, what are we trying to achieve? What is the goal? To me, most of us would agree on two main goals. We want to protect and improve human welfare, basically more humans to flourish. Yeah. Um, Second goal is we want to protect and improve the quality of our environment. No one wants to breathe dirty air or drink polluted water. um, And that's the reality for, you know, the majority of humans on the place, on the face of the planet today Mm -hmm. The biggest problem in the world is not climate change. The biggest problem in the world today is energy poverty. We have almost 4 billion human beings living in some level of energy poverty. About 700 million of them have zero access to electricity and cook with dung and wood and breathe in wood smoke every day, the equivalent of two packs of cigarettes. Yeah, and the, the biggest problem that the world's is facing is an
1: energy crisis.
2: Yeah, 100%. we need more energy, not less. Yes. and so that's that's the biggest problem i mean if you want to maximize human flourishing and by the way reduce environmental impact because the lifestyle of cutting down trees and cutting down forests and in basically eliminating endangered species in many parts of the world because people need wood to cook and wood to keep warm Mm -hmm. at night is incredibly environmentally damaging and very, uh, emitting in terms of CO2 and air <laughs> no, pollution. It, it,
1: it's, I mean, cutting down forests to burn for energy use is, I mean, a comp, it's a compound effect because, okay, now you just took away this CO2, this carbon sink, you took away habitat for animals and you're burning it. <laughs> it's a carbon sink. So now all, all that CO2 is going back in the atmosphere. And I don't think that your average person realizes that, that, that I mean, look, that's how humans evolved. We discovered fire, we were able to cut down wood and use it for fuel. And it's I mean, nothing's worse than 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 that. And so um,
2: any energy source that is displacing the burning of forests and wood is yeah better. I mean, we like to vilify coal oftentimes, but coal saved the forests, <laughs> you know, and then so we have to acknowledge all of the massive benefit that that coal has brought. Yeah. It's an amazing resource, and still Many parts of the world should continue to produce coal because they can't yet afford nuclear power or natural gas or cleaner burning yeah, fuels. Yeah, I've actually kind of, so, you know, funny story. One, I'm continuously learning
1: about energy every day. And I was actually in Pittsburgh. I was actually with Toby and uh, stayed out too late drinking. So I get on this plane hungover, which is like out of character for me because I don't drink much. And so it just hit me that much. I'm like, i on this plane. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I end up sitting next to like a congressman uh, for West Virginia, and this guy and I spent four hours, however long that plane ride is, talking about energy policy. And he's like, he's like, they're going to do the same thing to natural gas. He's like, you're using natural gas as an argument over coal. He's like, and guess what? Then they're coming for natural gas. He's like, we've done things that they asked in coal. He's like, we still believe in coal, and that actually like opened up my eyes. It's like I'm not, I don't go down the the path of um Talking about natural gas displacing coal, um, I think that there's a spectrum of coal production in the United States, and we should focus on, you know, sourcing coal from um, or in the world. Sorry, we should focus on sourcing coal from countries that have clean standards. But yeah, I mean, like when I look at, it, I'm like, we need energy from every source that we can get, and over time, you know, you start migrating to better solutions,
2: just like coal did for timber and, and forest. Right. So I think that's an important thing to think about. There's an underlying false assumption. I call it the energy damage assumption, which I think most people believe, or many people believe, which is the amount of energy consumed is proportional to the amount of environmental impact in a negative way, environmental harm. So people believe, well, if we consume more energy, we're going to destroy the environment. Yes, And that energy damage assumption is 180 degrees wrong. Yes. It's exactly the opposite. The more energy can we consume, the more we shrink our environmental footprint, the less air pollution, the less intrusion into a wildlife habitat, the cleaner the water, because we know, go look, in the. if people want data, go look at every wealthy country around the world. Their quality of water, the quality of air, the c- overall protection of natural areas is significantly better than areas that have less energy and are more polluted, mm-hmm. right? In in developing world, they're energy poor. That's what we call it, energy poverty. They that's don't have why, enough
1: energy. And that's why we're energy maximalists, because yeah. that's, yeah. yeah, there's this, you know, I say this a lot in like the Bitcoin mining space with all the, um, you know, criticism that it gets, but there's this idea that there's energy scarcity and that we should reduce our energy consumption. And I'm the complete opposite. I'm like, Hey, we should produce and consume as much energy as possible. We shouldn't have this scarcity mindset because the more energy that we consume the more, I mean, humans just flourish and society grows. And you know, this, the, uh, might've heard me say this before, but everyone talks about an energy transition. And I've always been like, there's not a transition. It's an addition. Like energy demand has the potential to grow infinitely over time. You know, you can look at, um, government agencies, um, predictions and like, Hey, energy demand will peak in 2040, 2050. But does that really take into consideration that we become a multi, uh, planet species and we start traveling between Mars? I mean, space travel is picking up. Guess what? You need a lot of energy to travel around space. And so energy demand actually has the potential to keep increasing infinitely. So your y-axis keeps going up. Yeah, cool. We're adding wind, solar, renewables, but it's not enough to keep up with the energy demand. And I think that energy consumption is a good thing. And I think that you said it. it's like 180 degrees from how other people think about it.
2: Yeah, the data is clear on this. I mean, we've spent trillions of dollars over the last two decades investing in in mostly wind and solar, but renewables in general, and we haven't decreased our fossil fuel consumption hardly at all. We've gone from eighty seven percent of the world being powered by coal, oil, and gas to eighty three percent after trillions of dollars in twenty years. It's it's it on a graph it barely even shows up, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. we're going to keep consuming more energy, and in, in fine add more of these technologies to the mix. But we're not in an energy transition in any time in the near future. I mean, of course, if you zoom out far enough, of course, we're constantly evolving and adapting and we'll be migrating more and more to cleaner burning, more energy-dense fuels. And that's why I'm a huge fan of natural gas and nuclear power, Mm -hmm. because those are two of the cleanest options that have the highest power density or energy density yeah. um, within them. I think net gas and nuclear is such a just deadly one, two punch when it comes to
1: one it's abundant. There's a ton of natural gas around the world. Um, you know, nuclear's we talked about energy um, being geographically dependent. Nuclear is the one that like really kind of breaks, breaks that mold. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of nuclear. Um you know, the, uh, one thing I've had this comment on, on kind of the back of my mind going through this conversation, um, because your story of growing up in nature and developing a love for nature, there are, I don't think that there is a per capita or per person basis that is greater than the oil and gas industry of outdoorsmen. Like there is a huge overlap, overlap of, rednecks in the oil the field, field and outdoorsmen hunting, that just love, I mean, have a camping. deep, deep appreciation for nature. And so I've always found this paradox to be.
0: Who do you, who Very, do you think more outdoorsy in, in that regard? Oil and gas people or renewable people? Oh, oil and gas, hundred percent. I would not even put
1: like against tech, like tech people, like on yeah. a, I mean, on a per person basis, I mean, almost everyone I know in the oil field is an outdoorsman. And Um, I've always found that to be interesting because you hear like the media and the other side and like, oh, the oil and gas industry is killing the planet and, you know, they hate nature and it couldn't be further from the truth based on the people that are here. It's kind of interested in like your, uh, your preconceived notions of the oil and gas industry. You know, I, I have a feeling you probably didn't interface with oil and gas folks much when you're working in, energy efficiency, but now you are, you know, you're here talking with us, you know, you said you talked to Chris Wright the other day and have you had a shift in the way that you think about the oil and gas industry and the people that work in it
2: kind of along this journey? <laughs> a shift would be a severe understatement. <laughs> uh, I mean, I used to believe very strongly that um, the oil and gas industry was kind of the the evil empire, plundering earth, creating all this pollution, you know, greedy capitalists just extracting as much as they can without any concern for the environment and it's hard to emphasize how i've shifted to the opposite of that now after really spending years understanding the energy system and researching these issues and quite frankly i was just ignorant i mean and this is why i try i try not to attack people or or get into kind of I, I like to battle in the realm of ideas, but not really with people because I was one of those people that was clueless and ignorant about these topics because I hadn't spent enough time researching it. And I was in my little ideological bubble mm-hmm. and it bubbled, hadn't popped. Well, the bubble popped. <laughs> and, then, and I realized I, now I, I feel that the fossil fuels has improved the quality of human life and improved the quality of our environment. More than anything else in human history. And there's no – I mean, the data is absolutely clear on this in terms of every possible conceivable social m- metric and mm-hmm. environmental metric you could imagine. Yeah. Um, it has vastly improved their quality of life. Yeah, uh, And it, so the, I've gone – from one extreme to the other. <laughs> yeah. um, now I'm an oil and gas maximalist. Yeah, yeah. uh, so yeah,
0: now no, you're getting
1: called climate denier yeah. and oiling. You're a paid shill for oil and gas, and,
2: um. <laughs> which is ironic because I work in the nuclear industry. So <laughs> yeah. so it's like how does that work? So wait, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm a paid shill for fossil fuels, but. I actually sell nuclear power. Don't worry, I get. I've I've got called all the
1: names too, and I like to think that I'm pretty pragmatic about the way I think (laughs) about things too. But one, you know, I want to tell you that I appreciate um, the self awareness that you've had, and like getting here, and you're like, yeah, I was one of those people. You know, one thing that I like to tell people in oil and gas is, you know, there's a lot of ignorance out there, and usually it's because of a lack of of exposure to ideas. And you know, I always like think about like a kid up in New York City grows up all the only exposure he has is like, you know, what he sees from like mainstream media or the Biden administration in the white house, they don't have any exposure to the energy industry and how electricity that comes out of their wall, you know, they think they just plug in and electricity comes out. They don't know how it's actually produced and how energy works. And you can't blame them. Like you can't be mad at them for that because they've never had a medium to learn. And this is a huge mission for us at Digital Wildcatters is to create content where the world can learn and raise energy IQ. Because just like I was talking about with that attorney, you just lay it out and you talk about it and people can come, like they can connect the dots and they they can, um, you know, kind of see how this how this works. And so one, you know, I don't blame anyone for being ignorant. Um, what I do blame people for is, you know, if you're not open-minded to hearing discussions and being objective in your thinking. I think that's like when it gets in the territory, well, I'll dunk on you on the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me and Brian are a little bit different. Like I'll take opportunities <laughs> to dunk on people on the internet, but- It's weird.
0: <laughs> it's weird to have people have kind of like almost uh, made this entire topic borderline kind of like religious, you know, in, in a way. It's where they become hyper fanatical. And one of the things that I've always- Remember that my great uncle, I think is one of the smartest people I've ever known, said is you can, never, you can never change somebody who's a radical's mind, right? You can never have a logical conversation with somebody. So it's like people have like made this like almost like climate religion and, and they don't want to, to, to educate themselves on things because then it would go against everything that they believe. Mm-hmm.
2: You it's, know? It's, so they
0: find comfort in, in kind of being ignorant and, and they think maybe that's the noble kind of thing to do.
2: You know, and I think that's the overwhelming majority of the people that you would have as as haters. It's to what we were talking about before we went on air here, which was everyone in their own way is seeking a sense of purpose, sense of meaning in their mm-hmm. life. And many people get that by feeling they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. I think inherently human beings want to do that. That could mean on the most simple level, taking care of your kid or taking care of a parent. It could mean through your work. But for many people, that's latching on to a cause that they can believe in, that they feel like they're contributing to making the world better. And it's, it is, I think, inherent in humans that we just want that. Most people want that. And what's happened is I think you mentioned the religiosity aspect of this, which I think is spot on because we know you look at all the statistics, especially in the U.S. and in, in Western countries. Religion is kind of backsliding in a lot of ways. And that foundation of beliefs and that system of values that enables people to engage in the world and feel like they're contributing in a meaningful way and and giving back um, was stripped away for a whole generation of people. Mm -hmm. I was one of them. So I know how that feels. I was searching for meaning and purpose. And that's why I gravitated towards environmentalism is because it gave me a sense of purpose Mm -hmm. and a sense of contributing to something bigger than myself and it became part of your my identity and that's what I think you're alluding to here is it's one thing to debate issues or criticized topic you know someone's but you're threatening someone's identity mm-hmm. and it's not so easy to shed your identity it's it it was pretty painful process for me yeah. and you know not everyone's up for it Right. They don't want to do it. So it's not a matter of just convincing someone. Here's some facts. And here's why maybe you should think about it this way. You have to realize that for many people, this is a part of how they see themselves in the world. It's a part of their identity, how they derive meaning and purpose in their lives. And therefore, they're not going to just give that up just because you throw some facts out there, especially when they're told that it's misinformation it's not really true it's misinformation It's
1: greenwashing yeah. right you know
2: yeah
1: um that's actually you know our belief the, the thing about the oil and gas industry is you know everyone likes to get up on panels and bitch and cry about how the oil and gas industry's lost the narrative and um you know the the problem is is that the oil and gas industry is a technical industry it's full of scientists and engineers and so very Data driven, um, scientifically um, driven community, and that's how they try communicating their story. And I'm like, hey, most people don't give a damn about data and uh, facts. It's actually about storytelling and you know bringing uh, the human element back to a topic. And you know, I think someone like you take an environmentalist um, and you show them someone that deals with real energy poverty or something of of that nature. You know, we just had Uh, today on the show yesterday who's from Nigeria and just like hearing about you know some of the distributed energy systems that they have around there just like I mean um it's crazy what they have to do to just live and have a life like Mm -hmm. us and start telling stories like that and people's eyes might open up it's like oh it's not just about climate but there's this entire other half of it about humans and Mm -hmm. society and, and human flourishing and so
2: um yeah i think that that's one thing that the oil and gas industry has really struggled to i mean corporate america knows this this is what the whole advertising industry is built upon think about nike one of the most successful brands in the world does nike pound you with facts about how many athletes use their products no, they tell you a story about Tiger Woods of Serena Williams, overcoming adversity, yeah. going on the hero's journey, suffering through all this. They years make, of practice. They make
1: you believe that you're Tiger yeah. Woods, right? And <laughs> then look,
2: you become, this has achieved excellence, right? That's the story. And people are aspiring to, to excellence. A lot of people are, yeah. or, or at least want to be around it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. Um, and yeah. so that's a great example of just pounding people with facts is not gonna change their mind. Of yeah. course, all arguments should be grounded, in fact. Yeah. You should have all of the, all of the numbers and all the data ready at your disposal to back up your argument. But that shouldn't be how you lead off. It yeah. should be through storytelling, through yeah. emotion, through connection, yeah. and finding common ground in the forefront. Because if someone feels like you're adversarial coming at them, they're gonna be have their guard up. They're not gonna be open or receptive to your ideas. And that's why I say it's really important to identify those goals up front Connect around those say are we in agreement that this is what we're trying to do right we we, we want human flourishing, we want to protect the environment, and that's where we're aiming and let's set aside all the technologies and all those policies and say this is what we're trying to achieve, what is the most effective way to get there yeah and I think that's oftentimes what we lose sight of in these policy debates and Twitter arguments and, and yeah. everything else. I mean, Twitter's hard because you are constrained on characters and pe- people people <laughs> There's will, not will, much nuance. Yeah. Yeah. People will <laughs> criticize me all the time and say, well, there's more to it than that. I was like, yeah, I have well, how many characters <laughs> yeah. what am I supposed to write a book <laughs> yeah. in this tweet and give yeah. you every possible assumption yeah. and rationale behind you know, it? I no, mean, I think it's
1: um, I think it's pretty funny. You know, you like talk about like storytelling and you know, there's this whole thing, there's this whole movement right now against natural gas stoves. And I think that this is only going to increase over the next decade yeah, or so. so. And, um, but behind that, there's a big portion of my friends on Twitter that think that the only reason that natural gas stoves are in houses is because of effort of oil and gas companies and propaganda to say that natural gas is better for cooking. Yeah. And I'm like, First off, you're giving the oil and gas industry way too much credit (laughs) in their ability to deliver propaganda and storytelling because we suck at that. Second thing is, is you look at the, uh, I mean, it goes back. Hey, was cooking off of a natural gas molecule better than cooking off of wood um, in your house? Like, yeah, cool, and we can deliver it straight to the house. And so, you know, there's there's certain reasons why we gravitate to energy sources, and usually it's because it's a better technology. Like that's for me, I'm a technologist like better technology wins um yeah always and so anyways um and there's there's also a huge disconnect like i remember one of my friends reaching out to me he's like hey because you know like climate advocates and environmentalists hate the api and just like can't see like the api is the representation of big bad oil and gas and he reached out to me he's like hey like how much like influence does api have in the oil and gas and the shares Like, dude, i've never like interface with the API at all. Like, no one gives a shit about the API. He's like, Yeah, that's kind of the feeling that I was getting. Like, this side hates the API and oil and gas. It's just like, Oh, they set some standards for us, but like they don't speak for us necessarily. So um, it's just funny to see the disconnects and misunderstandings across society as a whole, but in the energy industry
2: in yeah. particular. Robert Bryce, who has the Power Hungry podcast, et cetera, wrote, he wrote an article recently about this. Showing that kind of the environmental organizations, if you tally up all the money they're spending on various misinformation campaigns around climate and energy, et cetera, and trying to vilify the oil and gas industry, it's $4.5 billion a year. $4.5 with a B, Wow! right? Now, then he added up, well, how much is the oil and gas industry spending? It, it was, they're outspending them. I forgot the exact number, but it's something like four to one. I mean, it's, it's radically outspending them. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. know, people can look up for the exact numbers, but it, it's not even comparable. So it's yeah. exactly the opposite of what most people think. They think, oh, this this in, this industry is trying to manipulate and mislead <laughs> people and spending all this money to do it. And it's just the opposite. So it's, back to
1: what I was saying earlier, I was like, what do you mean all the capital flows going to renewables <laughs> right. and,
2: and climate? Well, so. Uh, yeah. That's a criticism I get a lot, which is people say, oh, you're just doing this to, you know, show for nuclear, show for natural gas and make money. I was like, wait a minute. If I wanted to make money, I would have stayed where I was. I was a, <laughs> I was a CEO of a company that was getting $60 million contracts. We had tons of traction. We were promoting all kinds of programs with renewable energy, energy efficiency. That's where all the money's going. I, I mean, you have to be willfully blind not to see that the government and corporations and all the money is flowing there. It's that so, is I mean, so funny if I was I mean, re- motivated by yeah. money, I would have stayed there. <laughs> so I forget so how well, much well, money well, was yeah.
0: lost between well, 2016 and 2020. Well, and oil, oil and gas, gas
1: guys, yeah. Oil and gas yeah. guys are super capitalistic, right? And so I have friends that have gone into service businesses or tech companies that are based around renewables. And they're like, yeah, none of this shit makes sense, but it's where all the money's at. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah they understand like that's where the money's at and so yeah if you want to go make money like there's opportunities to go make money over there and um anyway so you know ending this podcast um i think it's important to note that you are working in the nuclear space um nuclear is funny to me because um if you ask people on oil and gas there's two reactions one is yeah of course nuclear is the future like we understand energy density nuclear is it the second reaction is, yeah, hey, quit telling people that nuclear is the future. That's the only thing they can displace oil and gas. And so people like realize that nuclear is the truth, whether they want to or not. Um, but then you see all of this infighting on Twitter, like renewables seems to really renewables hates oil and gas. And they also hate um, nuclear and nuclear is kind of like this bastard child. <laughs> and it's like, but if you like, truly but,
0: believed in what your ethos was, wouldn't you embrace nuclear? Yeah, for sure unless you were totally just religious about your favorite type yeah i mean it's it's
1: it's clean clean energy right and i know a lot of people like to attack the economics of it but what's happening in the uh smr space and then you know potentially in the future and nuclear fusion i mean it's something to be really excited about so just kind of you know
2: give us your take on nuclear and how it fits into all of this well i think the oil and gas industry and nuclear industry are very complementary i mean the reason i'm here in houston right now is because i'm at the world petrochemical Conference, and the re- I'm representing a, a nuclear power company because we can help refineries and chemical companies radically reduce their emissions, right We can produce heat up to you know four hundred and fifty degree C heat um, for all kinds of industrial processes mm-hmm. to, to to break chemicals and bond crack things, you yeah. know et cetera. Um, We can give them 24-7 carbon-free energy in terms of the electricity side. So there's huge benefits to refining petrochemicals uh, out the gate. So that's one thing. Then, you know, nuclear power is not going to be competing with transportation fuels. I mean, of course, electric vehicles are going to continue to advance. But for all the reasons we talked about earlier, I don't see them becoming mass adoption in in a widespread way that's going to displace. 97% of all transportation on planet earth is through oil and gas Mm -hmm. today. I mean, it's the oil industry. And even, I mean,
1: you look like, when we talk about EVs, we're talking about consumer vehicles, but look, I have a CDL. I'm a truck driver, like replacing diesel in semi trucks with EVs. That's not anywhere close to happening. Tanker ships, um, you know, I mean, things that are very industrial, you know, earth movers. And so those, uh, I don't even know if we'll ever be able to have the, you know, the battery capacity and technology to actually power those things. But, you know, when we talk about EVs, yeah, we talk about consumer vehicles, but that doesn't even touch
0: airplanes, ships, mm-hmm. heavy machinery. Yeah. And so uh, there's a reason we don't have electric jets.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't really see any competition with oil. I guess you could make an argument on natural gas. I see natural gas and nuclear is very complementary in terms of a power system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, you probably could make an argument that if we really ramped up nuclear energy, that you would start cannibalizing some of those natural gas power plants. That's that's true. That's, yeah. They were still play an important role because you're still going to have to adjust for peak. And although nuclear plants can um, load follow and yeah. they can ramp, um they don't do it nearly as good as natural gas and i think yeah. you want to have some diversity in in your power system so i think i think that's extremely important
1: when yeah. we talk about pro energy it's like hey
0: energy security yeah energy yeah. security
1: and being diverse in your power system is extremely important especially what you're seeing over the last year to two years with um, um you know russian ukraine war and things of that nature so that's another mm-hmm. extremely important topic
2: yeah now, so i
1: think um sorry to interrupt you here but on the, on the point of like vehicles, you know, another thing too, is like oil, petroleum is the feedstock for basically every product that's on the planet right now too. So it's not just a fuel for cars as well. It's like, Hey, we still need it to, you know, make everything in this, in this room, make all of our plastics, all of our, all of our products. And so that's what I've always said too. I don't even see these things as competing with each other.
2: Yeah, there, I mean there's four basic ingredients for modern civilization. This is kind of Vaclav Smil, who's a famous author in the energy space. He he all all four of them require fossil fuels and will for decades to come. So you have ammonia, which is mm-hmm. central to fertilizer, fertilizer. and yep. feeding people. If if we cut that off, basically half the world would starve to death, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a foundational uh, piece. You have plastics, which, as you mentioned, everything in this room, from the microphones to mm-hmm. our cars our phones our it, everything is yep. plastics are in everything. Right. Then you have steel, which is the foundation of our buildings, our transportation infrastructure, how we how we construct about everything. Try making wind turbines or nuclear plants. <laughs> yeah. steel Or, or even like a scalpel. <laughs> Try yeah. making a scalpel for your surgery. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you have cement. Which obviously our runways or roads our every, I mean, our yeah. whole transportation network is required. Now, all four of these things require fossil fuels. And some people will, will comment and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Technically, you can produce um, ammonia or plasma or you can't you do biopolymers and this and that. And it's like maybe on a bench scale, pilot scale level commercially
1: viable there's nothing
2: (laughs) that is anywhere close to commercially viable or scalable to meet the needs of global demand anytime in the near decades much less few years yeah so no there fossil fuels are irreplaceable at least for the foreseeable future maybe event i mean i'm confident we'll continue to march up the ladder of energy density and and innovate and find new ways i mean i think we have to
1: regardless i mean it's a finite resource right so um we better figure it out at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean that who knows, who knows when that point is, but yeah, the, um, you know, I think that that's important to understand is like all of these things that you mentioned are dependent on hydrocarbons. And I just, I've always found it just odd that you can't be a fan of all of them (laughs) to some degree. Like, oh yeah, man, I love nuclear energy. I think that it's fucking awesome. I also love oil and gas also love you know xyz yeah. like i don't understand why that's kind of a, a
2: controversial take to to have but
0: goes back to the religiosity we talked about <laughs> yeah exactly yeah.
2: so I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan and champion of oil gas nuclear power geothermal mm-hmm. hydro not as big of a fan of wind and solar i think they they can have some limited niche application and it's fine yeah. Uh, I actually but, like,
1: like, I don't like commercial scale solar. I like mm-hmm. solar on houses though, a lot or on parking garages, things of that sure. nature. Like, and I, I think it's awesome. Like at my house that, Hey, if I want to, I can build out uh solar with battery and I can have a Nat gas backup generator. And yeah, no, this probably makes sense on a, in a spreadsheet, <laughs> but it's cool that I have my own distributed energy system and there's some Bitcoin miners out, out there if yeah. I want. Like, I think that's cool
2: as shit, so. And you should um, have the freedom to, to do it, yeah, right? Um, yeah. But the government shouldn't be cramming down policy on all of us and forcing all of us to pay astronomical energy bills or yeah. threaten the stability of our electrical grid and the viability of our economy Yeah. because they are pushing one technology that doesn't scale. Yeah, it's um, not a fair playing field. Yeah, yeah So I,
1: I agree with that 100%. <clears throat> so, dude this, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour if uh, we really wanted to, but we're kind of getting long in tooth here. So um, this is all just very intriguing stuff. And I actually hope that, um, you know, I was defending you the other day in some comments. I don't know if you saw this or not, but someone was like, you know, is this kind of like um, malicious content production activity from Brian? And I was like, Hey, look, no, I know Brian. I've talked to him uh, before he started posting Twitter content. And I was like, he got a really good story of where he's come from and he thinks objectively and pragmatic and it's completely changed his, his worldview. And so I have a high level of, uh, of respect for that because I just don't think most people are capable of doing that. Um, so one, thank you for that. Um, you know, thank you for being a content creator and helping to teach the world about
2: energy and, you know, thank you for coming down here and doing this show as well. It's, Awesome to meet in person. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to meet you guys in person and for all the work you're doing to kind of spread this message out. I mean, we need as many people out there kind of championing this cause. And yeah. you, know, you guys created a, a company around this, right, and, and are doing a fantastic job of spreading the word. So thanks for your contributions in, in yeah. that area. And, you know, I'm that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, by day, I, I basically sell nuclear power. <laughs> but, you know, I'm in my... In my spare time, basically, I I try to write, uh, tweet. I'm writing this little book right now, a short little book that I'll be publishing. But if people want to just track what I'm doing, they can just follow me on Twitter at Brian Gitt. Or they can go to, I have a personal website, briangitt.com, where I publish articles that I write about energy or investing or those types of topics. So Awesome. Yeah, well, uh,
1: we'll send links to Twitter, to your website. That way people can reach out to you, follow you over there. Highly suggest it. Brian's a, just a, a cool dude that uh, thinks about the world in a, in a great way. So, follow him for his content. And if you like this show, make sure to share it with a friend. Share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn, email it to him, text it to him, write him a hand letter note, tell him to come check it out. I don't give a damn. Just share it with your friends. Uh, this is some really good stuff here and a message that everyone needs to hear. So, Brian, thanks again. We will catch you guys on next week's episode. Cut, 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 cut.